And so to be led by the Spirit is to not look for some mystical experience or some feeling, but it is to spend time studying and renewing your mind in the Word of God. And listen, the will of God never contradicts the Word of God. Say amen, will you? Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today we continue our study in Romans chapter 8, looking at our adoption into the family of God. As His children, we have the opportunity to fellowship with Him, calling Him Abba, Father. Stay tuned to find out how you can listen to the series on Romans in its entirety. But now, let's rejoin Dr. Brogy as he looks at whether as believers we are born or adopted into God's family. Are you born into God's family or are you adopted into God's family? And of course, the answer is yes. The Bible teaches both. You're both born into God's family and you are adopted into God's family. Spiritually, we are born into God's family. Legally, we are adopted into God's family. And both descriptions are true. And you will find yourself very excited if you are able to embrace both of them in your thinking. So on the one hand, we must be born into God's family. Jesus said it three times over. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. It's not enough to be born once. You must be born twice. You must be born again to be a member of God's family and to be a part of his kingdom. Now, the five children that God has blessed me with, they are my children because my life is in each one of them. They are, in one sense, born of me. Likewise, when you are saved, you're placed in Christ. Not only you are forgiven, you are justified, you're declared righteous. And because God declares you righteous and holy, for the first time ever, God the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. And so Paul can say in Romans 8, 9, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, So he's called the Spirit of God there. But if anyone does not have, notice the Spirit of Christ, also that title, he does not belong to him. Now this concurs exactly with 2 Peter 1, 4, where it says we become partakers of the divine nature. That is, we become members of a new family, just as our earthly biological birth enrolled us into an earthly family, our spiritual birth from above enrolls us into God's family. That's why John the Apostle could equally write, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God and such we are. So when I am saved, something not only happened to me legally, something happened to me vitally, something happened on the inside. Not only did I get a new legal status that we will examine in just a moment, but I also received a new nature as Paul has already underscored here in Romans 8. Now that may seem odd to some of us if someone is born into a family that they also need to be adopted into the same family. But the reason that seems odd is because the way we do adoption today is different from the way adoption was done in the first century and in biblical times. There's a distinct difference between human adoption and divine adoption, between the adoption of the 21st century and the adoption of the first century, the context of which Paul uses to describe divine adoption. So while it is true that like in human adoptions in our day, we are transferred from one family into another. Even so, when we are adopted, we are removed from the kingdom of darkness, as the kids studied in Bible school this week. And by the way, what a magnificent Bible school. What a great week. The biggest one we've ever had, and I think in many ways the best. 
hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of children. And thank you so many who work so hard. Hundreds of you, thank you. We are delivered out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. What a great and mighty privilege. We're brought out of Satan's family into God's family. So before we're saved, Ephesians 2 says, by nature, we are children of wrath. But now with our new nature, we are children of God, sons of God. But it goes beyond that. Now understand, there is a parallel between human adoption and divine adoption. So on the one hand, God adopts us, but he also births us. Why does he both adopt us and birth us? Well, if you have rich parents, say, that are worth, oh, $100 million, and you're born into that family as a little infant, as an infant, you can't go out and spend any of the money. You can't enjoy the inheritance. You can't enjoy the first dime because you're just a little baby infant. But when God adopts us, like in Roman adoption, there's a legality that takes place where you receive all of the rights and privileges that an adult has. So a brand new Christian, like the lady in the first service who just got saved, Less than an hour ago, she has the same legal rights and blessings as someone who's been saved for 50 years. Now, please understand, when the New Testament speaks of God adopting us, he is using the Roman method of adoption. And unlike human adoption and divine adoption, you are brought into God's family as an adult son with all of the privileges and responsibilities that come through that. Now, we'll see that in just a moment, but it becomes plain as you work through the text. And so it's like this. God can't say, well, Carl, you know, you're not to steal. You're not to lie. You're not to commit adultery. Oh, but Fred or Mary or Sally or Bob or Tanisha, you're just a brand new Christian. It's okay for you to commit adultery or for you to lie or for you to steal. No, 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 no. The new Christian who's been saved hours is just as responsible to the moral law of God as the person who's been saved for many years. And the new Christian has the same adult blessings and rights that the person who's mature in his faith. Now, he may not know all of those rights, and that's why we're to renew our minds and to learn the scripture and find out what is ours in Christ. But unlike human adoption, divine adoption brings you in as an adult son. You say, well, pastor, why is it then that God doesn't just adopt me? Why does he also have to birth me? Why do I have to be born into God's kingdom, born again, and at the same time adopted into God's kingdom? For several reasons. Number one, the legal rights that are yours as an adopted son are spiritual in nature. In Ephesians 1, it talks about how God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so for you to be able to enjoy those legal blessings that God has bestowed upon you, you must have a spiritual birth. It would be like, uh, without the spiritual birth, it would be like taking a fish out of water, putting him on a platter, putting flowers all around him, allowing him to be in an air-conditioned home with all the stereophonic sound and all the accruedments of a wealthy home, but it would do him no good. He would feel totally out of place. Why? Because his nature dictates that he needs to live in the water. Likewise, unless you have God's divine nature, unless you uh, have been born from above, you will not be able to experience the spiritual adoption that is also yours. So legally, we are adopted into God's family. Spiritually, we are born into God's family. 
Now, look again in verse 14. Don't get lost in this forest of theology, but that's essential if we're going to understand the Spirit's leading. Verse 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now, he speaks here of being led by the Spirit of God, and it is a word in the New Testament that is used as someone who is willingly led. In other words, when God saves you, he doesn't hook you with a, uh, put a ring in your nose and drag you around and force him to follow you. No, we are to yield to him. And in fact, in the broader context, he says, if we really are saved, we will yield to him. So how exactly is it that we are led by the Spirit? How exactly is it that we are led by the Spirit as sons of God? Well, remember the context. This word begins with the word for. We left off last week in verse 13. But verse 14 is connected to verse 13. He says, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so the Spirit, as we studied last week, helps us to put to death the things of the flesh, the deeds of the body. The older translation says mortify. We don't use the word mortify or mortification much anymore, though we may speak of a mortician, but it means to put to death, which is a mark of genuine conversion and a mark of leading in the Christian's life. The ancients used to say, you will kill sin or sin will kill you. And so one of the marks that a person is saved is there's a new leadership. And so Christians sometimes say, well, I have the leadership of God, the Holy Spirit in my life. Put out there in the margin next to verse 14, let Scripture interpret Scripture. Put out there in the margin, 2 Peter 1.4. Put that out in the margin, 2 Peter 1.4. Peter, in that chapter of Scripture, is describing our new sonship. And there he says, For by these he, the Father, has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them, by these promises, you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And so when you get saved, you get a new nature. You don't become a god as in New Age theology, but you become a partaker of the divine nature. You say, Pastor, how do I know if I really have become a partaker of this new nature? Please understand there are many in our day who would claim to be born again who really are not born again. And we know that because Jesus said that will be true in the final judgment. In Matthew chapter 7, a scripture I've underscored here the last two Sundays and one we need to underscore because God tells us in the last of the last days there would be scores of people who can answer the diagnostic questions right but who are as lost as can be. And in the final judgment, Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, and remember the context, he's speaking of those who claim to be Christians, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and your name perform many miracles? Please underscore the word many. Remember, again, he's not speaking of someone of some false faith, but someone who says, I'm a born again Christian. He's talking about people like those who are in John 8 who claim to know God, who are outwardly religious, but inwardly lost. And so to drive home his point, Jesus illustrates, not with some ho-hum profession, but with one of the most spectacular professions you could find. I mean, what better profession than this here in this verse? If we saw a person like this today, we'd say, wow, 
They are not only saved, they're anointed by the Spirit of God. They're a Spirit-led believer. And yet Jesus makes it perfectly clear that in spite of their false profession, in spite of their false preaching, for they prophesy in his name, in spite of their, uh, their ability to cast out demons, in spite of their false powers, for in his name, the Bible says, they perform miracles. And by the way, there's no reason to doubt that, to doubt that claim that they make before the Lord Jesus, because the Bible teaches, especially in the last of the last days, False prophets and false Christians will do great signs and wonders. But these are people who talk without truth. These are people who make a profession without any inward reality. And such talk and such profession is just that, talk. And so Jesus moves from what they say to him to what he will say to them. Notice, he will say solemnly in verse 23, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They used his name freely, but in terms of their name, he didn't know. Not that he didn't know their name in terms of your Joe Schmo as an omniscient God, but it's a word, relational knowledge. They didn't know, he didn't know them in a personal way. They had not become a partaker of the divine nature. So have you. You have to ask yourself, and now's the time to ask it, not later on. Not to convince yourself you're a Christian when you have a life that denies it. Do you have longings within that want to follow Christ? Have you become a partaker of the divine nature? Right after Peter says that, in the next chapter, he talks about pigs and dogs. He talks about the pig that wants to go back to the slop and the dog that wants to eat its own vomit. And he describes these who have a profession but no inward reality. And then he says what's happened to them has happened according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. You can wash a pig. You can perfume a pig. You can put a ribbon around its neck and make it all ready for the county fair. But when it's all over, he'll go back to the mud. And just like a dog, a dog will throw up. But because he has it within his nature, he will then go and eat his own vomit. So unlike dogs and pigs, what do sheep like to do? Sheep like to go where the pastures are green. Listen, the Bible teaches there in 2 Peter 2 that if you've become a partaker of the divine nature, you have a new appetite for the things of God. You have a new appetite because your nature is after God's nature and God is holy and you will want to live holy. Not only does your nature determine appetite, the Bible also teaches that your nature determines your behavior. An eagle flies because it's an eagle. A dolphin swims because it is a dolphin. Your behavior is influenced by the nature you have. And so our behavior ought to be like that of our heavenly father. Because he is holy, we want to live holy. But not only does it determine your behavior, the Bible also teaches it determines your environment. Squirrels, well, they climb trees. Moles, my yard is covered with them. Used to have all these cats and they'd kill them all, but all the cats are dead and the moles are everywhere. Moles like to burrow underground. Trout love to swim in water. And the child of God with the nature of God no longer enjoys the environment of darkness, but he enjoys the environment of light. The child of God wants an environment that is suited to his nature. But with that new nature and with that new environment, so comes a new association. Lions, they travel in pride. Sheep, 
They move in flocks, fish in schools, and the child of God longs, hungers, and desires to be with the people of God. I just recently led a couple to Christ and about a month ago, and they came up to me just a few days ago, and they said, Pastor, we used to hate coming to church. Now we can't wait until the doors open. We just love being with God's people. It is so exciting. And if you're sitting home watching me in TV, not because you can't come here, but because you won't come here, you're either grossly out of fellowship with God, or you've never come and had this new divine nature implanted. Real Christians want to be with other believers when they gather on the Lord's day. And so just as in the physical realm, the child takes on the nature of his parents, both the apostle Paul and the apostle Peter teaches that when we are indwelt by the spirit of God, we take on a new nature. Now go back to Romans 8 verse 14. Don't lose your place here. For all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now, we need to clearly understand what it means to be led by the Spirit because there are so many unbiblical uh, definitions in our day that have entered into evangelicalism. There are some who say, well, to be led by the Spirit is to have some kind of mystical experience, some uh, special feeling, or maybe even a direct divine revelation. And so I hear these people say, well, God said to me, not God impressed me, but God said to me, and then they give this dictation extremely dangerous. That's what the cults do. That's not what the child of God is to do. And the latest fad that has invaded Christian bookstores is people are having dreams. And then they go on and they tell what these dreams mean, much of which have little or absolutely nothing to do with the Word of God. Remember, in Scripture, the Bible teaches that the authority of God is expressed in the written word is over your experience. You don't say, I had this experience, therefore I'm going to go find some verse that will baptize it. You know, men will dream dreams and have visions. And so, you know, here's my justification. Oh, no, 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 no. You put your experience under the authority of scripture. I can take a verse out of context and make it mean whatever I want it to mean. The Bible says there is no God. But in context, it says the fool has said in his heart, there's no God. And so sola scriptura, scripture alone is our final authority. And it is to be above any experience or tradition or anything else you can see. And the devil knows. And if the devil can convince you that the Bible is not sufficient, and that's what he's doing today. He's telling Christians the Bible is not sufficient. And he's telling that to preachers. He's saying, don't preach like Brogy preaches, don't open the Bible, it's too heavy for them. They won't stomach it, it will cut the crowd in half, and it will. It will cut the crowd down dramatically. But the devil wants you to think that the scriptures are not sufficient when the Bible says it is. And the devil's strategy goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Remember there in Genesis 3 5, he said to Eve, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so that first couple rebelled against God. They chose to learn good and evil by experience. They put experience over the authority of the Holy Word of God. Now, God doesn't want you to know good and evil by experience. God wants you to know good and evil the way He knows good and evil. By revelation. By direct revelation from an all-knowing God. And so God said, here's a tree. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I don't want you to eat from it. I want you just to leave it alone. And that should have been enough for man because God said it. And so even today, 
people are no longer satisfied with the Word of God. And we have all these denominations and preachers last week agreeing with the Supreme Court. And the liberal media introduced all those kinds of preachers saying they did a wonderful thing because this is an equal rights issue. This is not an equal rights issue. This is a moral issue. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says the law, speaking of man's law, is not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. And so he says man's laws are are written against perjurers and drunkards and murderers and homosexuals because God sees it as a moral issue. But listen, I'm telling you, it's happening and it's happening fast and it's going to happen. The next step is they're going to say no tax-exempt status. You can believe what you want, religious freedom, but the federal government will not acknowledge you as a nonprofit, as a church. That's next. And eventually, they will arrest preachers for hate crimes. I preached a sermon one time on the Antichrist, and I think there's good reason to believe from the book of Daniel that the Antichrist will be a homosexual. And the spirit of Antichrist is very much at work in our day, my friends. And God's people need to stand up. Someone said to me this week, there was a couple who came to your church and you made them mad. I said, "Why why did I make them mad? Because their son is a homosexual. And you said homosexuality was wrong. I said God said it was wrong. And I read to her a portion of scripture. In fact, she became a Christian by the hour was over. She was filled with questions. I said, God says, don't you know the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor revilers shall inherit the kingdom of God. The next verse says... But such were some of you. And such were some of you. I know because I led you to the Lord. God gave me the privilege and you told me that you came out of that lifestyle. And God has saved you and redeemed you and made you a new creature in Christ Jesus. And some of you I've even married. Praise God the changes he can make. Listen, we need to make the authority, the word of God, as the psalmist said, establish my footsteps in your word And so John promised this in John 14, 26. The Lord Jesus said it, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, listen, you need to be led by the word of God. And the spirit of God, when he leads you, he leads you in conjunction with the word of God. Now, certainly this was a special promise for the apostles because God would bring to their minds the things the Lord Jesus said so that the New Testament could be recorded. But this teaching ministry, this helping ministry goes beyond the apostles because 1 John 2.27 teaches that all of those who are born again can be taught and led by the Spirit of God. And so to be led by the Spirit is to not look for some mystical experience or some feeling, but it is to spend time studying and renewing your mind in the Word of God. And listen, the will of God never contradicts the Word of God. Say amen, will you? All right, now there's the Spirit's leading. That's the first point. Secondly, adoption also brings the Father's love. The Father's love. Look at verse 15. For you have received a spirit of slavery. You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So in adoption, we experience a new intimate love relationship with God by which we cry out, Abba, 
Father. Now, these are two words, Abba, Father, from two different languages, Abba being Aramaic, Father being Greek. The Bible is written in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Almost the entire Old Testament in Hebrew with a few chapters and paragraphs here and there in Aramaic. Almost the entire New Testament in Greek with a few sentences and a word here in Aramaic. Abba, Father. Two words side by side. It was the first word and an Israeli child would say in Paul's day. They would call their daddy Abba. It's the first word typically, at least dads like to think, that a child says of them. They say, Daddy. It's a very tender word. And so I was there in the marketplace in Jerusalem and listening to all these Jewish children go around calling their daddy and mama, Abba, Emma, Abba, Emma. And it reminded me of this passage. And Paul is saying, God's Spirit living in you causes you to cry out, Abba, Daddy, Father. Now, it's a radical thought, a radical thought for a Jew to address God directly as Father. Even the names of God were so revered by the Jews. When they wrote the name of God, they would set aside a quill, they would wash their hands, they would pick up a new quill, they would write the name of God as they copied Scripture, they would take that quill, lay it aside, dispose of it, never to use again, and they would go back to the old quill, continuing to copy Scripture. And so there is a wonderful, magnificent reverence that they had for God. But the sad part was their distance from God, and especially today, because none of us have to be distant from God as members of a new covenant. And so because Jesus, just as he promised, sent another one just like himself, he didn't leave us as orphans. And so the Spirit causes us to cry out, Daddy. Now, if you've ever led someone to faith in Christ, one of the first marks of their conversion as they learn to pray is they begin to call God Father. It's a wonderful thing to watch. I could have prayed, I suppose, this morning, Daddy, please help me to preach. Though, had I done that, some of you would have written me letters, I suppose, and said, well, Pastor, you're too familiar with God. You're, you're not reverent enough with God. Um, but I certainly could have done that. I could have called him daddy, and, and you can tell him, especially in your private life, when you look at him in the eye through faith, you can call God your daddy. But in Scripture, you find both terms, father and Abba. One is a term of reverence, and the other a term of intimacy. And every time the Lord Jesus prayed, he prayed to God as father, with one exception. On the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because as he became sin for us, as he bore our sin in his own body on the cross, and he was separated from the Father, he didn't refer to him as Father, but he taught us to pray that way in the model's prayer, or what we sometimes call the Lord's Prayer. He says, when you pray, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. What a blessing it is to be able to call God Father. As Christians, we enjoy not only a birthright, but also an adoption that reinforces how God the Father has purposed to seek us and to bring us into His family. To listen again to today's study in its entirety, why not download the Search the Scriptures app for phones and tablets and look up the message, The Blessings of Adoption. You can find the app at the iTunes Store or the Google Play Store simply by looking for Search the Scriptures Carl Brogy. You can also listen online at our website, searchthescriptures.org, 
And if you have any questions or would like a CD or DVD copy, call us at 877-787-7478. Perhaps you have a question you would like Dr. Brogy to answer personally. You can do that on Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. Join us tomorrow as we conclude our look at the blessings of adoption and search the scriptures.